This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. The Music Modernization Act, or MMA, is a new piece of legislation that would create a blanket license for mechanical royalties from streaming services, as well as an agency to administer that license. There's unprecedented support for this bill across the music industry, but there are, of course, concerns as well. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's show, we talk about the MMA, its strengths, its flaws, and the likelihood of its passing. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to David Israelite of the NMPA. David, welcome back to the future of what. Thank you for having me. So today we are talking about the MMA, and this is a piece of legislation that you have had a, a big hand in creating. So I wanted to talk to you for sure and talk about how this has come about and how long it took you guys to work on this and and sort of the backstory of the MMA. Sure. And there are a lot of people that have been involved in this, and I'm proud to have been one of them. The legislation started actually about 10 years ago when we recognized that we had a significant problem with how songwriters license digital services. We have built over the decades licensing structures that are built for models that are no longer relevant. And so we've licensed mechanicals for a long time by licensing record labels kind of one song at a time and one album at a time. And that worked pretty well during the period in which we mostly were selling copies of physical products. And when we moved into the download world, that system just kind of carried through so that the record labels would be the ones to license the download stores like an Apple. The record label would then collect the money for the songwriter and publisher and then pass that money through to the writer and publisher. And again, you really only were licensing single songs, single albums at a time. What we recognized about 10 years ago, when people started moving toward models that looked like interactive streaming, is that we did not have systems in place to license a digital company for the entirety of a massive library, say 40 million songs, where the digital company is expected to know every fractional owner of every song and license it directly from the music publishers, something that digital companies had never done before. And so we started working on legislation about 10 years ago. It never moved through Congress. We tried again in 2011 and that again failed. And now here we are where the problem has just grown. And probably the best evidence of the problem is the fact that you're seeing a lot of lawsuits against these digital companies for not licensing properly the songs in their catalog. And so we started this process with a goal in mind of trying to fix the problem of how we license digital services. And in doing that, there are lots of other things that we wanted to accomplish to benefit songwriters and music publishers. 
And so that's really how the conversation began. And it's evolved into a piece of legislation that actually can pass, which is kind of one of the goals we had going into this process, is that if you look at all the different parties that care about legislation in the music space, whether they be writer groups, publisher groups, PROs, labels, artist groups, the digital companies themselves, even broadcasters, it's impossible to pass something through Congress unless you have consensus, unless you have an agreement among all of the parties. And so we went into this process with the goal of could we come up with legislation that addresses this problem of how we license digital services, do it in a way where we could actually obtain consensus so that it could actually pass, and in doing so, accomplish a lot of other objectives to help music publishers and songwriters. And that's really what we've come up with. And we can get into the specifics, obviously, but that was the kind of the framework of the discussions that started really between the digital companies and NMPA about how to address this problem. And I think it's important to point out for people who are listening who, because, you know, of course, as soon as we say the word mechanical, everybody's like, what? I mean, it becomes, you know, this is the this is the weeds of the music business, unfortunately, but it's also a huge part of everyone's business. So it behooves us all to understand it as well as we can. I think it's important to point out that when the DMCA was created in 1998, that created a new royalty that hadn't existed before, which was a sound recording royalty for non-interactive streaming services. And it also created an agency or the need for an agency to collect that, which became Sound Exchange. So we had a new royalty created and an agency that collects that royalty and, and pays it out. Now, the difference on this side with this mechanical situation is that this is a royalty that actually has previously existed throughout history, and there was a historical way of dealing with it, as you said. But because of the changes in technology, a problem had arisen that needed to be dealt with, and both sides of the equation were starting to feel that it needed to be dealt with. So I think that that's really important that we understand that this was like a problem for everyone. It's a problem for publishers and songwriters to not get paid. It's a problem for the services, the streaming services, to have this, you know, these constant lawsuits. <laughs> That's not the best way to go about doing business. But this legislation is interesting in, in that it solves the problem by creating a blanket license, as I understand it, and also it calls for the creation of an agency to administer that license. So can you explain those two pieces? Sure. And I, and I think the analogy to the sound exchange model is a good one. For record labels and artists, they mostly live in a free market. The government doesn't regulate how their business works. There's one area for artists and record labels where that's not true. And that's for, as you mentioned, a performance right for digital transmissions, basically digital radio. And so when Congress created this compulsory license under the law, for artists and record labels to have a performance right for digital radio. Along with it, they created a mechanism to actually license it, and that became SoundExchange. On the songwriter and publisher side, and this is where it gets awful confusing, but we are regulated in the same type of way for a different type of our right, which is what's known as the mechanical reproduction, which has always been, over history, the sale of copies. So if you're a songwriter or a music publisher, you have lived since 1909 under a compulsory license where you can't say no, and the price is set by a government body whenever you're selling a copy of your song. And these new digital models are somewhat of a hybrid of old models. It's not quite radio, 
It's not quite selling copies. It's something in between. But it does implicate what's known as our mechanical reproduction right, which is exactly why we need to build a licensing system that makes sense because the people that want to use this compulsory license ought to have a way to get it. And we didn't quite have one under the way that the market was working under the old models. We were very good at licensing radio. That was a public performance. And you would get a blanket license from a couple of different companies like ASCAP and BMI and CSAC and now GMR. And if you took their blanket license, you could play anything you wanted on the radio and you would be licensed for it. On the mechanical side, the history, as I mentioned, was always selling albums. And we were very good at licensing the 10, 11, 12 songs on a single album for a record label to put out. When a company like Apple or Amazon or Spotify or Pandora wants to charge a consumer $10, let's say, to have an interactive streaming service, that service now is in a completely different world than what we had built a licensing system for. They couldn't get a blanket license. They couldn't actually get the compulsory for all the songs they needed. And they were put in a position of where they basically were operating in a way that was technically infringement. And I have no criticisms of the people that have sued them for that infringement, but I think we want to find a better way. These are the services that are really going to help make the industry grow and provide an income stream to songwriters and publishers that's important. And so we need to figure out how to be better business partners. And that involves us figuring out how to fix the licensing system. And then I keep mentioning this because it's a very important point. We're not just doing this to be kind to the digital services. They have given us a whole list of things that have immense value to songwriters and publishers in exchange for fixing this system. And so let's talk about the agency part for a second. Do you feel that a, a new agency will be created to administer this? Or do you think this is something that SoundExchange could do or morph into or have maybe a subsidiary company do? Uh, it's a great question. And the answer is very simple. It will be a new company. And it will be a company that is controlled by music publishers and songwriters. But it will be funded 100% by the digital companies that take the license. We went into this process with some principles that I felt were very important. One principle was that if we were going to create a new blanket license system that was going to collect money and reports from the digital services, it needed to be an entity that was controlled by our industry. Secondly, it was very important to us that the people who use this new blanket license be the ones to pay for it. There's no reason why we should be funding a fix to their licensing problem. And finally, it was also a very important principle that we decided this was not going to become a competition among existing companies. Whenever you throw out some type of you know, new revenue stream and you tell existing companies that are designed to make a profit to come and get it, you create a system where you're going to have a lot of different people trying to obtain the right to be that entity and not working collaboratively to build the right type of system. So what the legislation calls for is a new entity. It will be governed by a board of directors made up of 14 music publishers. Four of those 14 will be self-published songwriters so that songwriters can have a voice and have transparency into what goes on in this new entity. Although it's worth noting that with mechanical licensing today, songwriters have no role in the governance or transparency into how that license works. And so this is a big step forward for the songwriting community to now have an active role in it. And this entity 
is going to be probably hiring outside vendors to provide a lot of services, but the entity itself is not going to try to create the entire infrastructure that would duplicate things that already are available in the marketplace. So for example, there are lots of companies out there that are in the business of matching the ownership of a song that was played on a digital service and who owns the song. Right now, if you're a digital company, you hire one of those vendors to provide that service. Apple and Spotify use one vendor. Amazon and Pandora use a different vendor. Google bought a company and does it internally now as a third vendor. What we're going to be doing now is centralizing that matching function. It'll still probably be provided by outside vendors, but the decisions will be made by a board made up of songwriters and music publishers, but the funding will occur from the digital companies that are using the new license. So I'm glad you mentioned the board and the board structure because that's something that has actually just changed a little bit over the last week, or at least it was just announced over the last week, which I think is a really interesting part of this. This really seems to have been a very collaborative process. And and as we go forward, day by day, really, different constituents are stepping up and, and changes are getting made to this act, which is kind of exciting. So the board, when this first was announced, was going to be 10 people with two songwriter seats on it. And the Songwriters Guild of of America, the SGA, they lobbied or negotiated or came to the table at some point and said, listen, we want more songwriter representation. And it appears that they got that. So that was just announced. That's exciting. Well, I think it's very important that people understand what happened because there's been a lot of reporting on this so far that's been inaccurate. And I'm happy to share with you and your listeners exactly what happened. Oh, good. (laughs) Inside info. So this process of coming up with the bill, first of all, it's worth mentioning, these bills are being sponsored by two of the greatest champions that songwriters have in Congress, Doug Collins in the House and Orrin Hatch in the Senate. These are their bills. We don't get to decide what's in them. We can come to them and make recommendations or make requests, but they're the ones that are in charge. And so any discussion about parties like NMPA or a songwriter group deciding what's in the bill is just inaccurate. All we can do is try to work with the members in terms of getting a product that they decide what they're going to propose. Initially, you're correct. We had discussed having a board of 10 people, of which two of the 10 would be self-published songwriters. And this was a process that involved two of the largest and and probably most influential songwriter groups in the United States, the National Songwriters Association, NSAI, and SONA, the Songwriters of North America. And we decided to bring them into this process from the very first day, and they were involved in every meeting, in every email, in every draft, because I felt it was extremely important, as did our sponsors, that this be legislation that the entire music industry could buy into, and the songwriters are obviously a key part of that. And so NSAI and SONA were part of the initial proposal that involved a 10-person board with two writer groups. There were some other writer groups that had other requests. They weren't really part of the process up until that point. But once they saw the draft bill, they weighed in with different concerns. And a lot of credit goes to Paul Williams, the chairman of ASCAP and a great songwriter himself. And Paul really pushed to try to figure out how we could bridge the divide between those songwriter groups that had already endorsed the bill, which included NSAI and SONA and ASCAP and BMI and and, and some other groups as well, and a few other writer groups that weren't yet ready to endorse the bill, the Songwriters Guild being one of them. And it was really with the encouragement of Paul and NSAI and SONA 
that we went back and said, well, maybe we could do a little bit better in terms of the board representation. And we offered the idea of doubling the songwriter seats and adding two more independent publisher seats. And we were able to get buy-in from everybody on our side of the table. And that led the Songwriters Guild to say that they were now willing to endorse the bill. And so I'm very happy that the Songwriters Guild has now endorsed it, but it's, it's not really accurate to suggest that they somehow negotiated that change. That was a change that all of the parties really tried to offer to get some unity within the industry, which is really hard to do. And I'm glad that we seem to have quite a bit of support now for what the package looks like. That's great. And thanks for sharing with us how that works, because that's important information for everyone to know. So at the, the current state of the bill, what do you think we're looking at in terms of timing as we move forward? And do you think there will be more markups? So I should mention that where we are right now is we have a bill in the House and a bill in the Senate that are identical. We're working with a large coalition of people that involve a lot of different parties, but basically you can divide them into four basic camps. You've got the writer-publisher-PRO camp. You've got the record-label-artist camp. You've got the digital services camp. And you have the broadcaster camp. You need to get all four camps to agree before anything is going to pass Congress, in, in my opinion. And so we're trying to build a product that can get supported across the board by all four of these different constituencies. The bill that has been introduced right now has the support of the vast majority of the music industry organizations as wide, as I've mentioned, as ASCAP, BMI, NSAI, and SONA in the Songwriters Guild, in addition to NMPA, the Association of Independent Music Publishers, the Church Music Publishers, the Production Music Publishers, the Print Music Publishers, on the label side, the RIAA and A2IM, the Grammys, AFM, SAG-AFTRA, Sound Exchange. And on the digital side, the five main players in the organization, DEMA, which are made up of Apple, Amazon, Google, Pandora, Spotify, the Internet Association, all have endorsed the bill. And the broadcasters are in a position of what they call positively neutral, which means <laughs> they are neutral on the substance of the bill, but they are telling Congress that they are positive about it passing, which is about as good as we could hope for when it comes to that constituency. What will happen next is in the House, there will be a markup of the bill. That probably will happen in March. And in the Senate, there will be a hearing on the bill. And that probably will happen in April. It could happen in May. After that, there will be some changes to the bill that will be consensus changes, meaning that things that all the parties have agreed to make as a change. I don't think you're going to see a lot of changes that are forced over an objection. So the idea that this is still a work in progress where people can come have input is really probably not accurate. I think the only changes that will occur will be ones where all the parties agree there's something that needs to be tinkered with to satisfy a concern or something that wasn't thought of. It's a very complicated area of the law. And then what you're going to likely see happen is you're going to see this bill married with a couple of other issues that help record labels and artists. And those issues include dealing with the pre-1972 copyright problem, known as the Classics Act, dealing with an issue that producers have about getting direct payments from sound exchange, and that's known as the AMP Act, and maybe even one other issue that has to do with how rates are set for satellite radio. And if that happens, you'll end up with a larger music bill that affects both labels and publishers, both songwriters and artists, and you will have a consensus music bill that actually has a chance of passing Congress this year 
and making some real progress for the industry. Well, it's a very exciting moment, and thanks for everything you've done. We all appreciate it. David Israelite, thank you once again for being with me on The Future of What? It's my pleasure. Brightly colored eyes Staring at the natural tan A 32 gently clenching wrinkled little hands 17 company men Out of which only 12 will make it back again Sergeant says a letter to Goodbye.
goes la da 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 That was 16 Military Wives by the Decembrists. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it, Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Mitch Glazier of the RIAA. Mitch, welcome back to The Future of What? Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So today we are talking about the MMA, and some people might wonder, why would I have the president of the RIAA on to talk about a bill that is sort of a publishing side bill. So do you want to weigh in on on, uh, what's important about this for you guys? Yeah, it's actually going to be a confluence of different bills that Congress has considered over the past several years put together in one bill. So one piece of it will be a new blanket license for mechanicals that is included in what's now called the Music Modernization Act. Another piece of it will be royalties for artists who recorded before 1972 who will finally be able to have some statutory certainty about getting paid for their work. That's currently in the Classics Act. Another piece of it is making sure that the rate standard across the board for both songwriters and recording artists and their publishers and record companies will be benchmarked at a market set rate so that we won't have disparity anymore, and some will be below market and some will be at market, it will get everybody to the same market-based rate for statutory licenses. And then the fourth part is a producer's provision, which is currently in something called the AMP Act, which makes sure that producers can get paid directly from sound exchange when the artist with whom they had a contract asks for that to be done. So we literally have a songwriter, artist, producer bill together in one moving vehicle for the first time with the whole community marching together. So it's it's pretty historic, not just from a legislative point of view, but from a coalition point of view. Absolutely. And, and you know, I've heard many positive things across the industry from a lot of different people. Do you Are you pretty confident that this sort of more omnibus bill is going to move forward? I am. I, I think that the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives has been working for so long, doing their due diligence, trying to identify the issues, and then pull the parties and the stakeholders together to get something done, that I do think that they are ready 
to move this forward. They have had two years of hearings. They've had stakeholder negotiations. You know, they really have put in a large investment, which goes to show, you know, sort of a side of government that people might not see sometimes. But because the Constitution specifically delegates to the Congress the job of protecting our intellectual property and creating systems for it, they do take it seriously. And so that process has finally resulted in, I think, what will become a markup in that committee. And hopefully we will very quickly get through the House and and we'll be in the Senate. And nothing is easy. There's lots of dysfunction. There are plenty of unrelated things that could hold this up. But we will have, for the first time, not just the music community, but the technology community and the music distribution community all marching together trying to push for this to happen, which, if we have any shot at all, should really help. So there's certain things going on in Congress that make it seem more likely that this act might pass. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. There are lots of different folks from districts that care about different pieces of this legislation that are together for the first time. So, you know, for example, it doesn't matter whether you're from Northern California or Southern California, this bill is good for you. The broadcasting community, to its credit, has come forward and helped to make sure that the bill can move forward in a way that keeps them as partners and allows people to move forward. And so that has certainly helped. And the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House, Bob Goodlap, has announced that he's retiring, and this is his last year as being chairman. And as I said, he put so much energy into the process to get here that I think he's going to make a big push to get this through the House. And Senator Hatch, who's the head sponsor in the Senate, has also announced his retirement. And he's also a songwriter, and I think he would very much like to see this get done. We also have Congressman Doug Collins, who looks like he will be in a leadership position moving forward, and he is really invested in this bill and pushing with his colleagues to get this done. So not only do you have the stakeholders all coming together for the first time, but you also have the members coming together. And Congressman Nadler from New York, who's right now the chief Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, is poised to become the leader on the Democratic side of the Judiciary Committee in the next Congress as well. So we have a, you know, one of those times when Jupiter and Mars has aligned, and we just have to work really hard to push it through. Right. So, you know, the unity is surprising in the music industry, the support for this bill. And I think it's because it does do so much good for the community as a whole, for all the different constituents. But there have been some critiques of the bill in its current form. One of them is that it's indemnifying Spotify against Spotify in particular, because Spotify is the service that has, you know, historically been sued, sort of famously sued and famously the subject of class action lawsuits about these mechanical royalty payments, that it sort of indemnifies Spotify in a way that's unfair. Do you have a thought about that? I don't really have an opinion about Spotify in particular, but I think that's exactly right, that the litigation that has occurred and songwriters exercising their rights against people who are infringing 
has created uncertainty for those services, which brought them to the table to try to negotiate a resolution going forward that all the parties think is fair. And, you know, it's always a balancing act of making sure that current and past grievances and infringements are addressed, but also that you're looking forward to create a system that's going to move the entire industry forward to assure fair compensation going forward. And you have to balance those two pieces and bring all the stakeholders together in a way that, you know, where, where everybody gets something, where you can address past grievances fairly to the extent that you can, but also create enough certainty in the marketplace where the services have the incentive to come to the table and agree to pay going forward on a fair market level to creators, you know, from the time of enactment on. So I doubt very much that it is a perfect resolution, but I think it's probably a compromise and a balanced resolution, taking those two pieces into account. Do you have any concerns? Because my concern as a label, and you obviously represent labels moving forward, is that there's just a little bit of unclearness about the database creation in this bill. And what I'm concerned about is is what we saw in the Sensenbrenner bill that was up last year, Transparency and Music Licensing Act, where, where basically the onus on the database creation was on the labels and the artists to get their data into this newly created database as it stood then, you know, as it was proposed. Are you at all concerned, representing labels, that that might be somewhat of a burden on us going forward? We are concerned. The way that it's drafted it preserves the status quo to the extent that whatever information labels have and can provide and do provide today, they now have to provide to this new entity. They did try to cabin it in so that when this new mechanical blanket license entity gets established, they have to put together the data in a way that becomes more accessible, more useful, more transparent, And I do think that those are positive things where services and labels and anyone else will be able to access on an aggregated basis that information. But it's also very important that people be able to retain ownership of their data. You know, when you're a label or you're a publisher or you're an artist or you're a songwriter, you know, the data that you are gathering about your works is your data. And you know, you you sort of have to walk the line between establishing a database and aggregating it and making it accessible, but also making sure that the control of the data remains with the creators of the works. I think they did a pretty good job in drafting those provisions to maintain both of those goals, but it is a sensitive area, and we're going to have to be pretty diligent, I think, as we move forward. What do you think the timeline is right now for this bill? My guess is probably the first week of March or so, we'll see the first movement of the bill in the committee in the House. They set a goal of next week, which has done what it's supposed to do. It's forced everybody to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, wait a minute, there was, you know, there's this one piece of this one part of the bill and we have to negotiate it out. So there are about five or six of those that are sort of lingering and that they're putting to bed. And they have a very good process of going around to all the stakeholders to do that, which is good and healthy. So my guess is realistically, it probably won't be next week. It'll be, you know, when they come back the first week of March. And that should give plenty of time to try to get to 
the floor in the House, and hopefully we get pretty much unanimous votes because of all the stakeholders coming together, and it can move pretty quickly to the Senate where we can start the hearing process and make a goal of getting this done before the Congress is finished this year. Absolutely. Well, it's an exciting moment, that's for sure. It really is. Mitch Glazier is the president of the RIAA. Mitch, thanks so much for being with me again on The Future of What? Thank you.
That was Pretty Ugly Before by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them, but with so many bootleg products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be officially licensed. Rockabilia.com carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. Check out their store at rockabilia.com and get 15% off with code PCFutureofWhat. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Blake Morgan. Blake, welcome back to The Future of What. So great to be here. Thanks. Yay. Okay, so today we're tackling the subject of this MMA, (laughs) which is a behemoth. (laughs) You have been outspoken a little bit on a couple panels and and talked privately about the problems that you find with the MMA as a songwriter. So do you want to just sort of get right into it? Sure. You know, the way I characterize the MMA, at least in its current incarnation, and I'm someone who hopes that it will have other incarnations, <laughs> is, you know, there are great things in the bill. I, I want this bill to succeed. I want this bill to, to get into the end zone. The things about it that are great are things we all agree are great in music and things that we all agree must be reformed. It really is reforming some things we absolutely desperately need. And I applaud the bill and the people who put it together for that. However, there's also some stuff in the bill that is shockingly not great. <laughs> and so I sort of characterize the bill. Like if I want the bill in the end zone right now, for me, it's really not in field goal range. I realize I have the Super Bowl on my mind because that's just sort of happened. <laughs> but the way I sort of describe the bill is essentially what it does is it, it guarantees clean water for everybody. It guarantees clean air for everybody. And anyone under five foot four gets shot. <laughs> and so my whole thing is like, wait a minute, what was the third thing? Right. (laughs) Wait, we like those first two things. Wait, those are good. The first two things are great. And, and I think understandably when I talk to people who are close to the bill and who have had to fight to shepherd it, to get it to this point, you know, they're enthusiastic to the point of defensive about the first two parts. Right. But there's so much good in it. Of course there is. And this is the stuff we, we definitely need. I don't understand why we have to have the stuff that we don't need. And before I, I begin talking about how I'd love to see the bill improve and the three things I really would need to get within field goal range, <laughs> get close to the end zone with the bill, you know, let me also just say I absolutely loathe purity tests. <laughs> I abhor them. Right. And I absolutely admire and almost demand compromise. So I'm not someone who's asking for perfection. I'm not someone who wants only what I want and I can't understand how other people would want other things. It's just not who I am. And it's not where I'm coming from with this. Okay. Mm, so, yeah. so with that said, I think there are really three parts to the bill there, or rather there are three things that are currently in the bill that are really big problems for me. Okay. The first is the board that would get set up. You know, this is legislation that we're setting up a quasi governmental agency to help determine the future of songwriting in the 21st century. That's what we're doing. Okay. And on the board, as it currently stands, the board would be made up of 10 people for this quasi-governmental entity. And out of those 10 people, only two of them would be songwriters. Right. And, you know, for me, if we were setting up as a country, as a nation, if we were setting up a, a commission or a board to tackle the concerns of women's health in the United States of America, and the idea of the bill was that only two of the 10 people on the board would be women for such a commission or a committee... I think a lot of people would have a problem with that. And even as a man, I would have a problem with that. Right. Okay. 
two is really not, it's really a non-starter. And I, I, I have been hearing that there's some movement on this front and that, you know, I think that it was kind of an overstep with two. <laughs> so I think that I'm hearing that there's, there's movement that this may wind up. I'm hearing that the new idea is that it could be four people. Well, you know, if musicians know how to do anything, we know how to count. And it seems to me that having five people would actually be compromised, right? <laughs> I'm sure that the streaming companies would like it for it to be zero songwriters on the board. And I'm sure as a songwriter, I would like it to be 10 songwriters on the board. So how about we compromise and have five songwriters on the board? Right. And by the way, there's precedent for this. In fact, in Europe, every such commission or board has 70% songwriters on boards like this. So, you know, I think five is reasonable. Where it's at right now with two is a serious problem, okay? Right. So that's, that's the first one for me. The second for me is this entity and the rules that we all as songwriters will be living under under this entity. As an independent, middle-class recording artist and songwriter, I can't opt out. There's no opt-out for me. So whatever they decide, I'm stuck with it. And why is that important? Well, it's important because not everybody is going to be playing by the same rules. The big boys, the universals and the warners of the world, they have a de facto opt-out of MMA because if they sign direct deals with Apple, Amazon, Spotify, someone like this, they really won't be subject to this committee or this entity at all, right? But here's the thing. You know, I do pretty well, but I don't think my phone is about to ring from Amazon, where Amazon is interested in signing a direct deal with me. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> okay, I've come to this realization, Portia. Yes. So what that means is that the big guys are going to be able to play by different rules than the little guys, but the bill is being sold as if it's so fantastic for the little guy. And again, let's not forget that the little guys and the little gals out there in songwriting, it's not just that they're little, it's that they're the majority. Right. The majority of songwriters in this country are women and men who are in fact in the middle class. So this bill really does serve the middle class in a variety of incredibly important ways. But this is one place, that's why it's important that I have the right to opt out. Or I would also settle for it, well then nobody can opt out. Right. But I, I don't think it's fair that different folks get to play by different rules. And of course that the more powerful folks get to play by better rules. Mm. I would also argue that I think there'd be overnight a lot more support for the bill if there was an opt-out for folks like me, because what I can imagine myself even saying is, well, it's not perfect, but you know what? If I don't like it, I don't have to be a part of it, but I do have to be a part of it because I can't opt out. Right. Right. So I think, I think the opt-out is a big deal. And that brings me to the third and biggest one of my three qualms, which is what the bill stipulates is that it gets Spotify off the hook from litigation. It essentially provides a litigation shield for Spotify. And I'm saying Spotify when it comes to class action lawsuits about mechanicals, NOIs, et cetera, because Apple and Tidal and Amazon, as of this interview, have not been saddled with repeated, massive, overwhelming class action lawsuits for massive and willful copyright infringement. Spotify has. Right. So this in the bill is really not an effort to get streaming off the hook. It's an effort to get Spotify off the hook. But here's the thing about my problem with getting Spotify off the hook, you know, in addition to my existential resistance to it, <laughs> which is what the bill sets up is it sets up this litigation shield retroactively to January 1st, 2018. Right. So what does that mean? That means that if I sue them today and the bill passes 19 months from now, my suit is retroactively nullified. Right. Okay. 
And listen, I'm a supporter of Fair Play, Fair Pay, another bill in, in front of Congress right now that I hope also passes. Fair Play, Fair Pay was first introduced three years ago. So let's say it passes this year, and imagine if there was a clause in Fair Play, Fair Pay that said, well, from now, uh, retroactively, no one can sue a broadcaster. Right. People would just say, that's crazy. And to me, what compromise is, is providing a, a mechanism and a shield where Spotify wouldn't be able to be sued moving forward after the bill is signed, right? So the bill gets signed, this is our new law, this is our new entity, and you know what? You can't sue Spotify anymore on these grounds for these issues because we've set up an entity that actually should solve that problem. You know, that makes reasonable compromise sense. What doesn't make any sense is that they get retroactive protection should this bill ever pass. And of course, as someone who hopes that a, a better version of this bill will pass, it makes me even more uncomfortable <laughs> that we're getting Spotify off the hook retroactively. And I, I have to say, I'm not a constitutional lawyer or a lawyer of any kind, and you can, I'm sure, find someone smarter and better informed on this issue than I am to speak to this, but I don't even understand the constitutionality of, of that idea, of getting Spotify off the hook, making something legal that wasn't legal beforehand. I, I really don't know, but I'm certainly uncomfortable with it, and it seems patently unfair to the point of humorous and ridiculous to me. Right. That sounds like something that was put in. I mean, you know, Dima was a part of the of the construction of this bill. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that a lot of stuff like that was thrown in as, you know, sweeteners for them, for Spotify and other streaming services who have not currently been sued, but I guess could be. But it also seems like it would be fairly easy to fix in the markup period. I mean, what is your hopefulness moving forward for the next series of events in this bill's life? I, I think you're probably right. And uh, regard, regarding the retroactive, you know, shield. And by the way, before I tell you what my hope is, you know, here's another reason why this idea is so uh, dangerous, the retroactive part of it which is that, you know, Wixon got their lawsuit in on December 29th on purpose because they didn't want to be affected by MMA. Right. And also, who knows who was just about to sue them in January, February, a month from now, three months from now, right? So it's actually already shielding Spotify. Just the idea of it has already moved Wixon's lawsuit. And who knows who it's preventing from filing another lawsuit. It's already helping Spotify. And the bill hasn't even been voted on. Mm -hmm. Just the idea is out there and it's already affecting the market, the growth of and the future of Spotify and the well-being of songwriters and publishers in the US. So I just want to get that in. As far as what I hope, I hope that the board will be made up of five songwriters minimum. I don't see that that's a huge stumbling block and I would imagine that smart people would be able to negotiate that. I understand that two of the other boards sort of underneath the main board of this entity. Once the entity was set up, there are two other boards, one, I believe, for oversight and one, I believe, for unclaimed royalties. And I've been told that those are on the way to getting improved to having five songwriters on each of those boards. So that's a good step. But my hope for the bill is that there'd be five songwriters on the board, mm -hmm. the, the main one. Right. My hope is that either middle-class songwriters like myself will have the opportunity to opt out or that the big boys, and I do mean boys, <laughs> will have to play by the same rules that I have to play by. I don't understand why we'd have two different sets of rules based on the size of our catalogs. That doesn't seem fair to me. So I would hope that that would be addressed. And what I would hope on the Spotify 
retroactive litigation shield part of it, essentially, is that that would be the first thing to get fixed, that it's fair that Spotify is protected moving forward after the bill or after a bill is signed, but that this retroactive part of it is amended and improved and essentially removed from the bill. I I don't think that those are three particularly heavy lifts and they would get me solidly within field goal range and probably within the red zone to be able to really support this bill. And listen, there are other things about the bill that I think are really problematic and dangerous. The database thing, which is probably something you could speak to even better than I could. And there's, I mean, there's, there are really some other problems as well in the spirit of compromise and in the spirit of abhorring purity tests, you know, I, I sort of want to pick my three big ones the way you would in a negotiation or, or, or <laughs> trying to deal with a, a contract. I, I own a record label and I sign people. So it's like, well, what's your, what's your big three? Right. Let's see if we can fix those. Those are my big three. Right. And if those three got fixed, I'd feel so much better about where this is going. The one other thing I will say is, you know, we're all used to in music as professionals, we're all used to seeing a lot of jockeying for power, jockeying for positioning, measuring, if I may be so bold, and really non-constructive behavior from our organizations and trying to work together. I totally recognize that our organizations are trying to pull something off this year with Pre-72, with the AMP Act, with Fair Play, Fair Pay, and with MMA. And I think that's great. I would hate to see that fall apart where someone somewhere jumped out in front of the pack and said, if you don't support my thing, then I won't support anything. And we've been there before. So I'm not willing to give up the AMP Act to help Pre-72. I'm not willing to give up Pre-72 to help MMA. I'm not willing to give up MMA to help Fair Play. I'm not willing to give up Fair Play to help anybody. We desperately need all of these things. And I really do think that we are in a moment that could be once in a generation or once in a decade to actually get this level of serious reform through that's going to help American music makers and music makers around the world too, because this stuff affects people in other countries as well. So I think there's a lot of optimism. I share that optimism, but these issues with MMA are serious and there aren't issues like that in the other bills, which I, I think is also why people are talking about MMA, you know, differently. I think Classics Act and AMP Act and Fair Play, Fair Pay are pretty much all set. So I'm really hopeful that we can get these. Those are my three big ones. And if they if they were addressed, I'd be overwhelmed with joy and uh, <laughs> really, really, really happy. Well, on that note, Blake Morgan, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with me today on The Future of What? Anytime, Portia. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Decemberists, Elliot Smith, And of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.